G'day and welcome to We're Only Here Once. I'm James Wiley and these are my stories. I hope you enjoy the ride. 1993, Chapter 11, Ecuador. Arriving from Colombia with a guitar, two surfboards and a backpack was a good way to get the attention of Ecuador's customs officials. Would I be the next sad gringo to discover that smuggling drugs wasn't as easy as it seemed? They called me over and told me, in Spanish, for they spoke no English, to open the surfboard bag. Then they wished they hadn't. My old wetsuit, board shorts and towel hadn't seen the light of day since I'd packed them, still damp, in Panama five weeks before. They spilled out as I opened the board bag's long zip, and it's fair to say the stench left its mark. And what are these two small boats for, the customs men asked, from a distance. When I explained, in the best Spanish I could manage, that these were surfboards for riding waves in the ocean, they stared back blankly. And fair enough, too. We were at least seven hours' drive and two and a half thousand vertical metres from anything resembling a wave. If these had been Australian border officials, I probably would have been arrested for several hours while holes were punched through my boards to search for drugs. But these were Ecuadorian officials, and, as I was to learn, they ranked among the world's least officious officials. For them, near enough was good enough, and the details didn't matter. This served me well at the border crossing, but worked against me on Ecuador's railways over the next week or so, as you'll see. Before long, the customs guys grew sick of trying to understand what the little boats were. Like most people who'd been curious about my surfboards as I bust through the Colombian Andes, the customs guards knew nothing of surfing, and there's more than a good chance they'd never even see the sea for themselves. Once successfully in Ecuador... And I should clarify here that I wasn't carrying several kilos of cocaine across the Colombian border. In fact, while I'm on the subject, I'll say that, when I look back, perhaps the most amazing thing about my nine months in Latin America was that I was never offered cocaine in all that time. Sure, I chewed a mouthful or two of coca leaves while walking the Inca trails, and one of the Peruvian surfers tried to take me with him on a dodgy cocaine-buying mission, but that was as close as I got. I never saw it, never took it, Never got offered it. Is that some kind of record? Anyways, returning to our program. Once successfully in Ecuador, I was greeted by the friendliest, most helpful taxi driver in Latin America. He loaded my little boats onto his roof rack and drove me the handful of Ks to the nearest small town with accommodation, Tulcan. The next day, a series of local buses ferried me 240 kilometres to Ecuador's capital, Quito, the world's highest capital city, at nearly 3,000 metres. The journey south across a high plateau was decorated with a series of conical, snow-capped volcanoes. The snow grew even more remarkable when a roadside sign told us we were crossing the equator, from which Ecuador takes its name, just a half hour north of Quito. I rented a room in the old part of town, then jogged up El Panacillo, one of the nearby hills, to pay my respects to the silver, 40-metre-high Virgin Mary that blesses the city from above. A quick note, not related to the story. 
El Panacillo means the little bread loaf in Spanish. And a free subscription to anyone who knows why so many mountains around the world are called bread loaves. I can't see the similarity. Having checked in with Mother Mary, I went downtown to get some admin done and came face to face with Ecuadorian inefficiency. Two of the shops recommended by Lonely Planet for buying a map of Ecuador had relocated without giving a new address, and the two that still existed had sold out of maps months before. At the British Embassy, the fax machine was broken, and so were the international phone lines at Quito's central post office. The contrast between tidy, efficient Colombia and ramshackle Ecuador was to become more apparent hourly, daily. And while I trekked fruitlessly round the city, poverty built a steady assault on my conscience. A woman huddled in a decrepit doorway with seven children under six begged for coins, and legions of boys with filthy clothes and faces begged to clean my unpolishable hiking boots with near bristleless shoe brushes. I'd seen poverty in many places during my months in Central America, but it had been of the rural subsistence variety. This urban poverty was on another level. It was the first time in the trip that I'd felt guilty, not just sad, but guilty, about passing through such poor communities where my visit advertised the health, freedom and expendable money these people could never hope to have. That night, however, I saw Quito in what must be close to its best. It was Ecuador's Independence Day, and the occasion was being celebrated with a free concert in one of the downtown parks. The music played by half a dozen local bands was joyous and intoxicating, and the crowd danced with 10,000 variations of what might have been salsa or samba or merengue. I still don't know the difference. But whatever the technicalities, these tunes and rhythms and the movements they induced put Aussie beer barn disco dancing in the shade. For some reason, I was adopted by a 10-strong group of musicians from the Andes who toured Europe with their music. I became their gringo sidekick and was included in the steady emptying of a large bottle of Aguardiente, the locally produced cheap alcohol. To heighten the joyous mood, the town square was periodically rocked by a range of homemade explosive devices detonated in the midst of the heaving crowd. Some bangs seemed to have little more horsepower than the bungers we used to blow up glass bottles with, and some seemed to have enough oomph to overturn a small car. At every concussion, the crowd roared its approval. How hundreds weren't killed, I'll never know. Or perhaps they were. Towards the end of the evening, the official fireworks were lit. They'd been arranged on scaffolding on both sides of the stage where the musicians performed. So there was a crowd crush as thousands happily fought to get clear of the flames and explosions. What better way to celebrate Ecuador's independence? The next day, I met up with Dunedin Mike, who had arrived in Quito from Bogota a few days before me, to try unsuccessfully to change the place and date of his flight back to New Zealand. And with Mike was Lundy from Queensland, who'd flown down with Mike while his wife Mel attended to some family business in her hometown of Bogota. Our main aim in Ecuador was to find some waves to ride. It had been nearly five weeks since Mike and I had last surfed way back in Santa Catalina, Panama and Lundy's surf drought was longer than that. My one-page surf report on Ecuador advised that the best waves on the coast were at Montanita, a tiny village about 600 kilometres southwest from Quito. 
there was a direct route westwards down the Andes to the coastal plain. But Lonely Planet said that a slightly longer route south through the mountains, then west to the coast through Guayaquil, Ecuador's second largest city, was a more scenic option. This journey began with a spectacular old-fashioned train ride from Quito to Baños, a pretty town in a mountain region a few hours south. After catching a hundred buses through Central America and Colombia, we were all keen to take the train for a change. But the guidebook warned that Ecuador's national railways regarded timetables as no more than rough approximations of uneducated guesses. So at mid-morning the next day, we took a taxi to the station to find out from the horse's mouth when the next train was leaving. When we finally tracked down the man who claimed to be the station master, he told us seguro, which means absolutely without doubt in Spanish. There'd be a train today at 3pm and that we should come back at 2 to make sure we got tickets. Great. So we returned to our hotels, packed our bags, bought some food and went back to the station at 2 as instructed. To find the station deserted. The train to Banos had left, half empty, an hour before. There being no one to ask about when the next train was, and no point in expecting their answer could be trusted, we gave up on the train and took the boring bus instead, stewing on the injustice Ecuadorian railways had dealt us. Banos was underwhelming. Compared to the scenery and towns Mike and I had found on our epic journey to El Cocoy in Colombia's high Andes a few weeks before, Banos failed to live up to its description in Lonely Planet. Still, we spent a couple of days walking through the lush hills and valleys that surround the town, and I got bitten by a dog. It seemed friendly when it approached, tail wagging, eyes wide open, seemingly thrilled to find one of the biggest dog people in South America. But it walked straight past my outstretched hand and bit the back of my ankle. It wasn't hard to fight off, but its teeth broke the skin and left me wondering if there was a greater risk from rabies or from a visit to an Ecuadorian doctor. I took a chance on the rabies. That excitement over, we made a return bus trip to the village of Puyo, further east, to experience yet another Andean road just an hour's heavy rain away from collapsing into the valley below. Then we moved further south to Waranda. On this route, we passed Chimborazo Volcano, and, not far from the road, what appeared to be the first real-live South American Yamas we'd seen. Our room in Waranda was at a grandly named Hotel Ecuador, which was run by two women, sisters perhaps, whose combined age must have been well over 150. The hotel was also a relic of the turn of the century, an ornate, beautifully kept wooden museum piece, with prices that I'm sure were a few decades out of date too. That night in town, Mike and I found another restaurant that was happy to give us dinner and a drink or two in return for a couple of hours of our music. The next day, we bust to somewhere else, 
For the life of me, I can't figure out from my diary where it was. But on the way there, we had to stop for a couple of hours while the single-lane dirt road around a mountainside got rebuilt by two blokes and a tractor following a landslip. On the return journey, we found the freshly rebuilt road was blocked by another landslip that had come down in the few hours we'd been gone. A range of rocks was strewn across our path, the biggest of them a semi-spherical boulder about a metre in diameter. Ignoring the chance that several more of the boulder's mates might soon join it on the road, the driver parked the bus as close as possible to the biggest boulder. Then a posse was gathered from among the passengers. Mike, Lundy and I weren't invited to join the posse, but we got out of the bus to watch, and to be ready to escape the next avalanche. Under the driver's directions, the boulder was manoeuvred to the edge of the road using half a tree as a lever. Then it was nudged into the valley below. We watched it thunder down the steep slope, noticing only then that a herd of cows was grazing in a rough field about 200 metres beneath us. Despite the chaos descending on them from above, none of the cows took any evasive action, and, by the grace of God, the boulder and the minor avalanche it created thundered and showered across the valley floor, just a bus length wide of them. This might go to show how right US President Coolidge was when he observed that, quote, four-fifths of our troubles would disappear if we just sat down and kept still, end of quote. Mind you, the Republican Party's decision in the late 1920s to sit down and keep still instead of regulating the US economy led to the Great Depression, which led to global misery and desperation, which led to the rise of fascism in Germany and Japan, which led to World War II, which killed at least 50 million people. So Coolidge was obviously wrong and incompetent and lazy. He would have fitted right in at Railways Ecuador. Or perhaps the cows in that valley had lived there long enough to get really good at reading avalanches. The next day we went east to Rio Bamba, then on to Alausi, another hundred k's south. Here, our guidebook advised, we could experience one of the highlights of any trip round Ecuador, an epic short train ride on a track called the Devil's Nose Route. This experience would ease our pain at having been incompetenced out of our train ride from Quito to Banos. What followed next does not reflect on us well, but we can't take all the blame. Having been denied the previous train ride due to incorrect information given by the so-called Quito station master, we left nothing to chance at Alausi. Several times that afternoon and night, we went to the train station to find out, from different officials each time, exactly what time the train would be going in the morning. Each time we got the same answer. The train would leave at 9am, Siguro, which, as you now know, means absolutely beyond doubt in South America. And to make sure we got a ticket, we were told to be at the station at least two hours before then. Great. So the next morning I got up at six and walked to the station to secure tickets for the three of us. There I was told there would be no train today. They only ran on weekends. You what? To calm down and consider our options, I walked to the end of the empty platform and stared bitterly across the dramatic valley into which the train track disappeared. The grisly array of rat and mouse carcasses carpeting the end of the platform reflected my mood. As I ruefully imagined the next epic train experience we were about to miss out on, up from the valley rumbled a train 
Well, it was an old bus mounted on a train chassis. I followed the autoferro, as the locals call it, to where it screeched to a halt at the other end of the platform. When the driver climbed down from his cockpit, he confirmed, Seguro, there would be no train this morning. But, Seguro, he promised, there would be a train at one o'clock this afternoon. OK, that gave us a six-hour wait with nothing to do, but we'd come half the length of Ecuador for this adventure, so waiting half a day was better than missing out. But when I then tried to secure three seats on this train, the driver told me I'd have to come back after lunch. I walked back to the hotel to give Lundy and Mike the news. They weren't happy, to say the least, about getting dicked around by Railways Ecuador again. But what the hay, at least there was a train that afternoon. With nothing to do except wait for it, we decided to return to the station and camp out to make sure it couldn't leave without us this time. We arrived back at the station to find 50 magnificently dressed tourists, Italians, we found out soon enough, boarding the train. We raced to the ticket office to buy our tickets, but it's closed, and the only so-called official we can find tells us the train's booked out. Say what? Bugger this for a joke, says Mike. Let's get on anyway. So we do. Pandemonium erupts. The Italians are trying to kick us off. We're telling them we've been dicked around by Ecuador Railways for long enough and we're not going to take it anymore. And there are plainly at least three unoccupied seats for us to sit in. Meanwhile, the Ecuadorian officials have realised this is their licence to make a small fortune and they agree to sell us tickets for five times the normal price. For once, we don't care we're being ripped off. It's worth it to win this battle. So off we go. The Italians hissing daggers at us every second. The railway ride is every bit as good as the hype. The single track descends into a steep, winding, barren valley, the rails clinging to the vertiginous slope by their fingernails. It's a miracle of engineering conceived in the 1890s by Americans and built by indentured Jamaican and local labourers, about half of whom died from accidents or disease. But the Italians aren't enjoying the ride that much. Instead of letting Mike, Lundy and me fade into the background, they remain bitterly obsessed with our presence. They talk savagely between themselves and with their tour guide, gesticulating and glaring at us every inch of the way. No doubt they'd been suffering their own frustrations with Ecuador's tourist industry, and that's where we could have found common ground and shared some funny stories. But it never came to that. After an hour or so, we reach the bottom of the valley, and the Italians get out to stretch their legs and take in the grandeur of their surrounds. We take it in turns to have a quick look around, so there's always two of us in our seats to make sure we keep them for the steep, hot return journey. An hour and a half later, when the excursion is over and we're all safely back on the Aloisi platform, the tour guide and three of the most outraged passengers attack us directly with further complaint. They cry, they swear, they wring their hands and walk away, then come back to shout more Italian or comically broken English. Lundy and Mike can't keep a straight face, so I become our spokesman. The Italians won't empathise with our frustration at having been repeatedly misinformed by Railways Ecuador. And I can't empathise with why it should matter to them if we sat in the three spare seats. Eventually, I volunteer to give them a small sum of money in compensation so they can feel they've had a little win. 
This feeble sum, it was perhaps five dollars, calmed them down and was worth every cent. Just so it's clear, I'm not proud of upsetting the Italians, and this was in part our fault. But the train driver and his mates were the ones who sold us our seats, and the Italians could have had a great time by simply ignoring us, or even being social if they wanted. It was an epic adventure on several levels. From Alausi, we headed south on more mountain roads to the gloriously named Chunchi and Goon, and from there west towards Guayaquil. Soon after Goon, the magic of the mountains evaporated during the road's misty descent to the dull, sweaty coastal plain. Guayaquil was dirty, smelly and urban, a shock after our four weeks in the clear air and light of the Andes. Lonely Planet directed us to something resembling a surf shop, and there we met Carlos, the linchpin of the fledgling Ecuadorian surf scene. He confirmed for us that Montanita was the place we should go. After a dash to Guayaquil's bank and post office, we take the two-hour bus ride west through desert and a dozen different cacti to Santa Helena, where we meet Ecuador's poverty again. On the next one-hour bus ride, north to Montanita, we see the sea for the first time since Panama. But it's a depressing reunion. The ocean's waveless, grey and wind-blown. And despite the equator being just a couple of hundred kilometres to our north, the wind blowing off the ocean is icy. This was our introduction to the Humboldt Current, the river of cold water that sweeps up the west coast of South America from Antarctica, driven by the storms that tear west across the roaring 40s latitudes, 8,000 kilometres to the south. That night, we found a cheap room in Montanita village, but in the morning we walked a few hundred metres up the beach to where the good waves were said to break when the right swell arrived. And there we found our next cool surf shack. Tucked under the headland, a simple resort of half a dozen separate cabins had been made out of wood and local stone. It was a little more expensive than our budgets allowed, but Mike and I did a deal with the owner. In return for cheaper rent, we'd be on call to provide musical entertainment for the guests at any time of day. A total win-win. Being a Saturday, who knew, our first gig was that night, and it went down a treat. The owner was thrilled, we were thrilled. Score. The next day we went for our first surf at Montanita Point, and froze The last time we'd surfed, in Central America, the ocean had been somewhere in the mid to high 20s, a bit like a bath. Here it was barely 16 degrees, and the cold onshore breeze made it feel even colder than that. At last, the old Sydney winter wetsuit that I'd carried with me as surfboard padding on this trip proved its worth. And boy was I relieved I hadn't chopped off the legs as well as the arms, when I'd been short of board shorts back in Tortola five months before. Lundy only had a two-mil wetsuit with short legs and arms and could stay warm for just an hour or so. Mike only had boardies and a rash vest and despite having grown up surfing in Dunedin could only manage half an hour before turning blue. We got a few days of okay waves on the point but we were visiting out of season. The best swells for Montanita come from the north between October and March. What we saw were the leftovers of roaring 40s south swells that hit the point at the wrong angle, and always the waves were ruffled by that pesky cold onshore breeze. But our surf shack was an epic hang, and we could spend hours every day working on our music without bothering anyone. 
In a few days, Mike would be going back to Dunedin to get the cafe set up. So this was our last chance to write songs and rehearse. Mike was a good lyricist and had a good sense of what made a catchy song. And I provided grooves on my travel guitar, other tunes and the occasional lyric. We were a good team. Every second night, we could try our new songs on the ever-changing crew of hotel guests. And the next Saturday, we played for a birthday party and brought the house down. Too much fun. On our last night there, Case and Courtney from Vancouver brought their small battery-powered cassette player to our cabin, and we attempted to record our first album live by candlelight. I'd love to know what happened to that tape. Maybe Mike's got it. I also made a start at turning my travels into chapters, but it'd be another 25 years before that project grew legs. When we weren't cooking our own food in the resort's communal kitchen, there was a great pizza place in town, if you were lucky enough to find it open. Or from the village baker, you could get fresh hot bread in the morning and fresh hot empanadas in the afternoon. For 10 days, we were part of an ever-changing community of Ecuadorians, Argentinians, Americans and Canadians. One of the Canadians, Paula, was teaching at the International School in Guayaquil. We got on well, but after a few days, she had to return to her job. And, sorry if you think I got my priorities wrong, I wanted to continue my solo journey to Sydney. We wondered if there might be a way, somewhere down the track, we could spend some more time together. Six years later, we made that happen by getting teaching jobs at the same international school in Bali. But that's a story for another chapter. On the last day of August, Paula, her friend Chantal, Mike and I made the six-hour bus ride back to Guayaquil. Mike was returning to Dunedin to get the cafe ready for the start of the university year. Paula and Chantal were returning to their teaching jobs and I was meeting Lundy at Waikil bus station to go surfing in Peru, just 500 kilometres further south. Lundy and Melissa, his Colombian wife, had left Montanita the previous week when Mel's boss needed her back in Bogota for a few days. But having had to cut short their Ecuadorian surfing holiday, Mel gave Lundy a leave pass to go on a replacement safari with me to northern Peru. You little ripper. Vamonos! If you'd like to see some photos that accompany these stories, you can find them at jameswiley.com and there's a link in the show notes. The music you've been listening to is written by me and played by me and my band, The Nomads. Big love and thanks to my family and friends, without whom this wouldn't exist. And if you want to make a podcast, look up Rod Morrie at Sydney Podcast Studios. Thanks for dropping in. See ya.